And now it begins. I've given him enough time to realize what he's up against. So while he hunts me, crazy, the greatest hunter of all shall be hunting him. Welcome back and welcome to Season 2, Episode 9 of Me and My Friend Pete, another Donuts and Dimes production. The podcast that explores all things THE Amazing Spider-Man. I'm your host, Peter Parker's persnickety pal, Gerald. If this is your first time with us, welcome. If it isn't, welcome three times and back once. This week, we're running through THE Amazing Spider-Man number 34, The Thrill of the Hunt. If you haven't, please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash hspp in the Key Keeper or High Council tiers. Patrons get a bonus episode every time we release one here. This week, we're running through The Darkness, Volume 3, Number 1, Empire, Part 1, Nightfall. A tale that sees Jackie Estacado looking for a fresh start in the only way the wielder of the darkness knows how. As a South American dictator, of course. That's later. Right now, fresh off the quest to save his aunt's life, Pete doesn't get a moment to rest as the cat's paw has bided his time long enough and now wants his revenge against the King of Swing from Forest Hills, Queens. If we've got Craven, we've got steaming sake, tedious trap setting, and misdirection. If we've got Spidey, we've got me, we've got you, we've got no further ado. We've got THE Amazing Spider-Man number 34, The Thrill of the Hunt. Let's swing! Me and my best friend Pete. Old adventures, new critiques. He spins webs, I spin yarns. Kinda kooky, be forewarned. Look out, it's me and my friend Pete. The credits. This one was scripted and edited by Smiling Stan Lee. Plotted and illustrated by Swingin' Steve Ditko. And lettered and relished by Sparkling Sam Rosen. Welcome back, Sam. And yes, this is another S and S and S production. The cover. The cover of this one has our usual Silver Age page topping title, The Amazing Spider-Man in Spidey Costume Red, with Spidey Costume Blue shedding his name atop spider webs as usual. Beneath the word man in the title, we get a blue circle caption box with goldenrod lettering letting us know the title of this one. The Thrill of the Hunt. And in a white negative space with large gray buildings on both sides of the page, we find Spidey, suited, yes, booted, of course, standing horizontally with his feet planted on the sheer wall of the stage left building, his arms out in front of him, looking up and over his left shoulder. Why? Because the one and only Siberian Saki sipping stalker with the shot back hair, Craven, the hunter, is falling towards Spidey, both legs wide, ready to mount the golden liability like he's a horse. Craven's wearing his cheetah print spandex pants and bicep armbands, tiger print gauntlets and belt. He's got his boar tusks that hold random different potions and concoctions lining his tiger print belt. He's wearing his ballet point shoes and, of course, his lion's head vest. The mane of the lion's head flowing behind him as he falls towards Spider-Man with his arms wide. His thick mustache and goatee perfectly in place. He's ready for revenge. And so are we. Let's get into it. Page 1 opens to THE 
Amazing Spider-Man at the head of the page. Beneath this, we get a white font and a red screen caption box dominating the upper fourth of the page. It says, The Thrill of the Hunt. Beneath this stage left in a white caption box, Featuring the somewhat magnificent menace of Craven the Hunter. Somewhat magnificent? Shady. And we are in a taxidermist dream. A large room just filled, filled with stuffed animals and animal heads. In the foreground, we've got a stuffed Bengal tiger, a stuffed black panther, a stuffed cobra. In the background, a stuffed gorilla with his arms up and head thrown back. There's an animal pelt on the floor. I don't know what that is. And along the walls, heads of a boar, a lion, a puma, a rhino, a cheetah, and an African elephant with massive tusk. Craven's hunted them all to death. And speaking of the cat's paw, he's walking into the room suited and booted, his face hidden behind the sheer curtains in the background, and he's thinking that he's beating every wild beast with his bare hands, but one, the greatest prize of all, that most dangerous of games. We turn the page. Page two opens to him staring at a mounted mannequin head on the wall with a clenched right fist, and his inner monologue becomes an outward one. I can endure the frustration no longer. I must battle and defeat my greatest mortal enemy, or else, Everything that has gone before is but a hollow mockery. The mask of Spider-Man must one day cover that plaster head, even if I pay for the victory with my very life. He's gonna hunt the crap out of the Spider-Man. Again! He grabs a cornucopia from who knows where and takes a swig of his special jungle herb potion, reminding us that this secret potion gives him the strength of the mightiest jungle animals, a strength that can match Spider-Man's. His rippling muscles almost bursting with new power and energy, Craven looks about him for a foe, for he needs combat, as other men need air to breathe. Craven leaps out of the window of his lair, and we see he was living in a lap of luxury in a handcrafted cabin in the jungles of Africa. He spots a lion stalking his homemade headquarters for a kill, and calling the lion Simba, tells the king of the jungle to look no further, because he's found his prey. He squares up against Simba in the next panel, saying no prey has ever been so eager and anxious to meet their deadly challenge. Simba roars, as Simba does, and lunges at Craven. And we get a gorgeous panel of Craven on one foot. This dude takes ballet. You know he has the footwork, and he is working. He's grabbed Simba by the chest and is flipping the lion easily onto its back in the final panel, saying that the lions never face prey that could meet its strength head on with the speed of a serpent. Craven, humility on worst ever. Then, scant seconds later, page three opens with Craven having bested the lion. He watches it run off, telling Simba he's allowing him to live, but his next victim won't be so lucky. Days later, at the bustling port of Nairobi, Craven is in Nairobi. Translation, the place of cool waters, capital and largest city of Kenya, where he's working on the docks. There are topless dudes wearing bandanas and white gloves. One's loading a cargo boom. There's another standing beside a caged gorilla stage right. And at the center of the page, we see Craven's more than just a hunter. Craven is channeling Big Burt Reynolds vibes. He's got on a pair of white gloves, a red striped t-shirt, purple pants, and all his muscles flexing as he secures a live caged black panther with rope. He's saying that once he delivers his animals to a zoo in America, he's going to begin the greatest hunt of all. The hunt for Spider-Man. Meanwhile, an ocean away, we find a startling, unexpected tableau unfolding before our incredulous eyes. 
and we see Betty Brant in a purple shirt and lavender pencil skirt. Her bob, like her fashion, flawless as usual. She's in profile and she's gripping the shoulders of the goldenrod kid himself, Peter Parker. He's wearing a white button-up shirt, a striped goldenrod sweater, and an SJB blazer over that. Betty's shouting at Pete, telling him she knows he's keeping a secret from her, and he must he tell her what must. it is. Pete, a pained look on his face, says, all right, you have the right to know. And I assume he takes off his blazer and sweater in the gutter between panels, because he's not wearing them in the next. But forget about that for a second. Pete shouts, get a good grip on yourself, Benny. This may be a shot to you. Then leaps onto the sheer wall of Betty's apartment. Both hands pressed flat, his right foot pressed against it as well. Betty shouts Peter and throws her hands up. Pete's just jumped onto the wall and stuck there. He walks onto the ceiling in the next panel and now, upside down, says that Peter's just one of the names he goes by. As Betty repeats, no, over and over. Pete says he goes by another name. And in the final panel, Pete, a look of shock on his face like he can't believe he's doing this either, tears his white button up from his chest, revealing the red and blue costume beneath it, shouting, The name of Spider-Man! Betty throws both hands to her face, shouting, Not, not you, you, Peter! Peter. Not, not you. you! Pete has spilled the beans! The Spidey beans! On four, Betty shouts, No, not you! It can't! What? I, I've been asleep. It was only a dream. Betty was having a fever dream. She ain't wearing a scarf on her hair, so I assume her sheets and pillowcases are silk because her bob is still flawless. And she lays there a moment, flailing in lavender pajamas, shouting, thank heavens, it's only a dream. But she can't stop thinking about Pete, night and day. And whatever Pete's hiding from her, she knows it's something, and it can't be that. He cannot be Spider-Man. She sits up and unable to fall back asleep, crosses her arm over her knees, sitting in the moonlight, shining through her window, stressed out. She says she has to make a decision about Peter and can't put it off any longer. Meanwhile, in a quiet section of Forest Hills, we find the young man in question. Peter's in a white tee and SJB's burning that midnight oil. He's sitting at his desk, left hand pressed into his cheek, a book open, studying in the low light. He says now that May's out of danger, he can get back to studying again. He's referring, of course, to ASM number 33, the final chapter, or the only way out is through, internal monologue. Here are me and my friend Pete, back to. Yawning, he says it's great that things are getting back to normal, but says he's bushed. But that doesn't stop him from flipping easily from his seat at the desk into the next panel, ha! his full body weight on his left hand, saying it won't take him long to get back in shape and that it's good to be alive. Thus, at the hospital next day, we find Pete in his goldenrod vest, a cross-hatched white button-up, SJB pants, right hand in pocket. And he's with Anna Watson, Aunt May's best friend, who's wearing a full-length red dress. And of course, May Parker in a purple shirt, propped up on comfortable-looking pillows and a hospital bed. May tells Anna Watson that it's so sweet of her to come and visit. And Mrs. Watson, great friend she is in a world before cell phones, says she would have come sooner but was out of town and didn't even know May was sick. May, no idea Pete spent the last three issues fighting for his life to save hers, says it was just a silly old <laughs> operation. Silly old, if she only knew. She says she's really worried about Peter because the poor boy hasn't had a soul to look after him all this time. And Pete, as usual, says he's been fine. Lying. Dr. Greaser enters the room in the final panel holding a chart, and he has good news. He says May's tests are normal and she can go home today, that she'll be good as new in a few days. Pete tells the doc he's the greatest. May's like, you're not low, Pete. You got school right now. I'll see you later. Mrs. Watson will see me home. I don't need your help. She says the two of them have so much to talk about. Pete tells them not to play touch football. 
and May calls him a caution. Stan, working with the chemistry. And so, not to be left behind, we too shall visit Empire State U and renew a few acquaintanceships. What a word, acquaintanceships. We're in ESU and Gwen, the heartthrob, Stacy, is being hounded by the Jackals. She's in a red v-neck sweater, maroon skirt, brown and orange oxfords, and two orange berets in the front of her platinum blonde hair. I'm not a hater, but the fashion on trash like the first of Foolsville. But she's stunning, so that doesn't stop the boys from circling, and she is surrounded. Flash is here in his usual green turtleneck. We've got a blonde kid in an SJB diamond patterned blazer, an olive haired kid in a lavender suit. Johnny Carson kid is here. He's in an olive suit and bow tie. And a red haired kid wearing a yellow sweater with a giant maroon O on the back. This is a rugby sweater to be sure. As Gwen strolls through, they start shooting their shots. Flash says, Come on, Gwen. You promised you'd go to the game with one of us. Blondie tells Gwen to admit it. She's picked him. Carson says, Nah, my brother. I'm the lucky guy this time. Zero, over the chase, tells Gwen to give them a break and tell them who she's chosen. But Gwen Stacy hasn't made a decision, and Gwen Stacy doesn't belong to anyone. Waving them all away, she says she has to rush to class, but she's going to think about it. Lavender Suit says she's been keeping them on the string for weeks. Got them like kittens with a ball of yarn, he's saying. And Gwen, unfazed by their thirst, says she knows, and they love it. A dude with black hair and a green polo walks up saying whoever winds up dating Gwen will be the most hated Joe on campus. But while all these boys have been thirsting over Gwen, she's got one guy on her mind. You know who that is. Putting her books into her locker in the next panel, she thinks, It's strange. It's strange. Peter Parker is the only boy who hasn't paid any attention to me before absentmindedly dropping a textbook just as the goldenrod kid spins the corner. Spotting the book falling toward the floor, he thinks, well, well, at last I have a chance to be a hero without turning into Spider-Man. Within, allow me, fear maiden, he reaches down to pick up Gwen's book, but she's not having it. Realizing who's helping her, she steps on the book, shouting that Pete better not dare touch it. Pete's like, what gives? And of course, Harry Osborn, his nose perpetually stuck up, walks up spilling salt with every step as he's wont to do. In a green suit and blue bow tie, he says... Do we have to spell it out for you? You're as popular here as Mao Zedong. Mao Zedong, aka Chairman Mao, was a Chinese communist revolutionary who was the founder and chairman of the People's Republic of China from 1949 to 1976. Considered a Marxist-Leninist, Mao was one of the most influential people of the 20th century, known not only for politics, but also as a theorist, military strategist, and poet who ruled China through a mix of autocratic and totalitarian practices. Translation? Absolute power in the form of a dictatorship. His regime is said to have been responsible for anywhere from 40 to 80 million deaths through, quote, starvation, persecution, prison labor, and mass executions, and praised for, quote, making China an independent and sovereign nation to a leading world power with greatly advanced literacy, women's rights, basic health care, primary education, and life expectancy. Thanks, Wikipedia. As this comic was released in the midst of the Cold War, I'm sure Harry, like most people around this time, would be against Chairman Mao because he was a communist who, until the Sino-Soviet split in 1961, because of what he believed to be Marx's revisionism on Nikita Khrushchev's part, was a staunch ally of the USSR. The split transformed the Cold War from a U.S. versus U.S.S.R. beef into a U.S.-U.S.S.R.-China beef. Three superpowers constantly in a state of animosity and peace with each other in a perpetual state of Cold War. You wish it was only fiction. 
starting to feel like 1984 yet. The book, not the year. You know the part where the Oceania crowd is in a frenzy over their beef with East Asia during hate week and literally in the middle of their rage against East Asia, the government in the midst of the frenzy crowd's climax shifts the enemy from East Asia to Eurasia and the protagonist Winston has to spend the next few weeks erasing all data Damn, about their beef with East Asia back to. Either way, Harry and company are clearly no fans of Chairman Mao or the Goldenrod Kid. In the next panel, Ditko's working hard. He's got Gwen scowling over her shoulder as Harry, flanked by two cronies, gives Pete an earful. You've been snubbing us since school started, walking around here like a swallow-headed snob, just because you won a scholarship. Well, that's okay with us, but don't think you can become one of the crowd anytime you feel like it. Pete thinks, now I get it. When I was worried about Aunt May, wrapped up in my own problems, they thought I was high-hiding them. The old Peter Parker look sure is running through the form. Pete's thinking, of course, of his first week in college that was back in ASM number 31. If this be my destiny, or all these threads in me without my crotcheting needles, here on me and my friend Pete, back to. In the final panel, Pete's taking off his goldenrod vest and is getting right to work in the science lab. He's holding a round bottom flask, setting it up on a Bunsen burner as students all around him in blue lab coats get sciency. And Pete's thinking he can't blame the school for treating him like the prize crumb of the year, but he doesn't intend to beg for their forgiveness. He thinks they'll get over it, but in the meantime, he better buckle down and catch up on the work he's missed. And that's it. Y'all want to make assumptions and not ask me what happened? Fine. I'm not begging. You'll get over it. I bet that's what he's thinking. Should he apologize? Maybe, but it's more than a little strange that these kids have chosen to pick on a person they don't know because he apparently chose to stay to himself. Everybody's not an extrovert, not just speaking for Pete. Some people are very withdrawn and some people are forced to be out in the world and they do not want to do any more conversing than they have to. Sure, you may think that's wrong, but queer to you does not mean weird to everyone. Let people live. Back to on six, Harry is feeling himself. He and Gwen are in lab with Pete and he's bragging to Gwen about how they showed the egghead where to get off. Like, pop your horse over there and get down, Frosh. I imagine that's what he's thinking. Gwen says she guesses so, but wonders why she's feeling ashamed of herself. She stares at Pete over her shoulder, wondering if he could have had a reason for acting the way he did. And Pete, in a space where his eyes are working again, finally realizes what we've known for three issues. Thank Gwen is a knockout. If only, uh, what's the use? Shoot a shoot, Pete. You don't even know. She likes you back. The camera focused back on Gwen. She thinks that Pete could care less about her, that he doesn't even know she exists, but she's going to change that. Well, Mr. Peter, Peter Parker, just, just you wait. wait. Gwen is on the prowl. Later, after class has ended. Pete's strolling down the street when two police cars come speeding around the corner. I bet that's Ike, Boltai, Charlie, and them finna make a mess. Pete thinks something must have happened and breaks into a sprint, thinking it'll only take him a sneeze to get suited and booted, then he can zip after him and get some action shots. Young Scoop Parker trying to fill up his donuts and dimes accounts. But a second later, he stops running. A smile on his face, ticking off the reasons why on his right hand, he thinks, oh, come to think of it, why bother? I still got money left from the last picks I sent to Jameson, and all may will be waiting for me. So I'll just go home and study like anyone else. Peter Parker, average American, that's me. <laughs> Nothing average about you, Pete, but I respect not doing it for the cash. Still, you got that great power. Don't get complacent. You already know the rest. But our average American self-imposed vacation is destined to end much sooner than he suspects. For not long afterwards. We're on the scene. The scene? A light brown building with a gold brick entrance. And we see a man in a brown fedora with a maroon sack over his left shoulder and a matching luggage case in his right hand standing at the entrance. The man's wearing a green suit and thinking that this is the place and he knew he'd find it again. He steps into a posh room with faces and profile lining the walls 
and he's thinking that this is the chameleon's hideout, the one he used when the two of them teamed up. He thinks he doesn't care at all about what happened to Chameleon as long as the man stays far away until the mystery man's mission is over. And of course this is Craven. He's talking about his first appearance when he and Chameleon did battle with Spidey in Central Park. That's ASM number 15, Craven the Hunter, or the most dangerous, dangerous game. Here on me and my friend Pete. That was one of my favorite issues to read and episodes to do. Back to. Craven pulls the fedora from his head in the final panel, sets his bags down, and starts monologuing as he walks to the kitchen to put some sake on the stove. For the time has come for Craven to begin his greatest hunt. On seven, the sake done brewing. Craven suited and booted, sitting on a green one-cushioned sofa. And he's saying it's good to be in costume again, and that he has to find Spider-Man before he, Craven, is discovered. Because he was banned from the States after working with the Chameleon and trying to murder the Golden Liability. We get a close-up of the cat's paw in the next panel as he says, But it was worth the risk. Worth whatever price I may have to pay to destroy the one I love the most in all the world. Now I must find a way to make him want to fight me. I need bait. Just the right bait for so dangerous a quarry. How did Spidey become the one he loathes most in the world? They've met twice and Craven started both fights and he's made Spidey his rogue. <laughs> like, I understand Dr. Octopus for having this mentality. Spider-Man has actively picked fights with the one-man hands team, linking on Vulture too. But Craven, He's the one starting the fights, getting his bum kicked, then obsessing over the losses. Maybe just leave the webhead alone. Maybe you don't got what it takes. But we know he won't. Then, after long hours of careful planning, scheming. Standing triumphant, his sixth cup of sake raised above his head in the next panel, he shouts, I have it, the perfect lure, just the thing to lead him to my trap. And then, the hunt shall begin. We'll admit this has been a pretty long introduction, but once the action gets started, it'll more than make up for it. So bear with us a short time longer, as we return to our average Spider-Man once more. Pete's in a then studying in a white t-shirt, and of course, May comes in carrying a tray holding cake and a glass of milk. Pete looking over his shoulder at her is stuffed already. He says, Another snack? Gosh, on May, we just finished dinner a half hour ago. But May, guessing right, says Pete must not have eaten a thing while she was in the hospital. She sets the tray down, continuing as Pete picks up the cake and takes a giant bite. That's it, Peter. A boy your age needs a lot of nourishment, especially since you've been studying so hard. In fact, I wonder if it wouldn't be a good idea for you to have a hobby, something to help you relax from your studies. And Pete tells her not to worry about that, that he's got a little hobby. Like swinging across rooftops and climbing up walls. Translation? Arachno cardio. Okay, web spinners, you've been patient with us till now, and here's where it starts paying off. As a commanding voice hails a taxi, a silent costume figure lurks in the shadows. And we see J.J. the Triumphant, J. Jonah Jameson, in a green suit, maroon tie, black bowler, cigar clenched in his right hand, as usual. He's got his left hand up, and he is tie-rating. Taxi! I said taxi! This is J. Jonah Jameson! While Spider-Man looks on perched awkwardly on a building ledge above and behind him, and Spidey's thinking it's him at last. He's been waiting for JJ. We turn the page and we're on... The Infinity, the Infinity page. page. Page 8. Just in time to witness Spidey leap down onto the top of the taxi cab Jameson's rushing into. He asks JJ what's his hurry. And JJ, in shock, turns and runs immediately screaming. No! Get away! You can't attack me in the middle of the street like this! Help! Somebody get him away from me! Spidey calls Jameson a coward and tells him to stop screaming. That he only wants to talk to him before pouncing towards the man. Jameson shouts that Spidey's out to get him because of all the editorials written against the webhead. 
and Spidey calls him a fool, saying that Jameson's racket has caused the crowd to gather. And he's right. A red-haired man in an SJB jacket shouts for someone to call the police because Spider-Man is assaulting Jonah Jameson. And Spidey, knowing when it's his time to get out of Dodge, does exactly that. He leaps back onto the sheer wall of the building he leapt down from, saying he can't afford to remain, but he'll be back as Jameson lets it swing past his knees. Ha! I always knew you were yellow. I scared you away. Did you all see that? Spider-Man ran from me. But moments later, on a nearby rooftop, we see... None other than the cat's Paul Craven, pulling a Spidey mask from his face. He is impersonating this Spider-Man. This is his bait. This is his plan. He shouts, It worked. I fooled them all. Only Spider-Man will know I was an imposter. And then he himself is sure to come after me, falling into my trap. I mean, Spidey literally goes to the Daily Bugle to take a Daily Bugle from Jameson personally once every week, and the two speak often. I wonder how JJ can't tell that this isn't Spidey. We're going to chalk this up to my Nana's rule of people hearing what they want to hear. But what of the real Spider-Man? Here he is, the world's most amazing hero, contentedly munching a Macintosh apple as he and his aunt catch up on the day's news. Peter's lounging on the couch in the living room, his left arm curled behind his head, his legs crossed, munching on that aforementioned apple hard as May sits in the chair across from him. May asks if he remembered to wash that apple, and Pete says of course, he's not the type to live dangerously, as a news report comes through the television. And now, news of the New York area. It has just been learned that J. Jonah Jameson, prominent newspaper publisher and man about town, was attacked by Spider-Man as the courageous publisher left the Daily Bugle off this building. As Jameson glares through the screen, Pete nearly chokes on his apple. May ask him what's wrong, but he says nothing, that he must have bit his tongue. And bit his tongue indeed! On 9, he sits up on the couch and thinks that he knows he didn't see Jameson tonight, so this means only one thing. An impersonator is stealing his shtick. May's aggravated. She massages her temple saying, Tisk, all this awful crime news. While Pete thinks he's itching to get out there and find the fake Spider-Man, but he doesn't want to leave May so soon after her illness. He thinks he'll wait a while before going after this imposter, thinking they may just be some crank and the police may have grabbed him up already. May tells Peter she hopes the broadcast isn't upsetting him. Pete says no, that he doesn't believe half of it anyway. But in the days that follow, the daring impersonation continues. And Craven is downright stalking J. Jonah Jameson. We get a long horizontal and in it, we see Craven Spider-Man upside down outside of Jameson's office window asking Jameson if he thought the Spider-Man forgot about him. Jameson shouts, you again! But Craven Spider says Jameson has nothing to fear from him, that he's going to bide his time and keep the miserable magnate waiting. He's going to keep him guessing. At the center of this panel, we see Craven's head, large and imposing, surrounded by the mane of his lion's head's vest as he stares down at the sprinting Jameson who's racing towards us with the sign of the spider beneath his feet. So I'm starting to think Craven got this costume from Chameleon because he was the only person who had the perfect replica of Spidey costume down to the Spidey signal. But I digress. Back to. Next we see Spider Craven swinging above Jameson's head as the paper magnate pulls a maroon fedora down over his face and races away from him. Hounded is an understatement, but Jameson ain't as pressed as he's pretending to be in public. In private, we see him holding a Daily Bugle, the cover showing a shot of Spider-Man with the headline, Spider-Man threatens publisher of Bugle. A cigar in his mouth, a smile on his face as he reads the article inside. JJ's thinking, let him hang around. By writing about his harassment, I'm selling more papers than ever before. If the man don't know how to get to the dimes. Finally, Spider-Man becomes the number one topic of conversation throughout the sprawling city. And we get what Ditko does better than everybody. I mean, one of the many things Ditko does better than everybody anyway. 
in the form of a crowd reaction shot. An auburn-haired woman in a red pillbox hat and blue jacket, she's styling. She says, imagine hounding a public-spirited citizen like JJ, that it's a disgrace. A blonde-haired man in a tan jacket says someone should put Spidey out of circulation once and for all. While a guy in shadow in the foreground says it's time the FBI stepped in and another guy in a fedora agrees. The goldenrod kid, walking by with his right hand in pocket, his left holding a daily bugle under the arm, so you know he's read the paper, is seeing all these people bashing his alter ego, and he's thinking, If this keeps up, I'll probably be mobbed if I ever dare appear in public as Spiny again. Until, at last, Peter Parker is forced to make a grim decision. Peter's sitting in class, his eyes closed, his fists clenched atop his desk, and if anyone's watching him in this moment, they'll think he's meditating the way he's sitting here so calmly. And that's good, because he's thinking, I can't let whatever reputation I have left be torn to shreds so easily. I just can't. I've got to take a hand in this. I've got to learn who the imposter is and stop him. While Gwen Stacy watches him over her shoulder. The decision made. All that remains is to formulate a plan of action. Tin opens to Pete, hands on hips, watching the news broadcast where Spidey's face is on the screen. And Pete's thinking Spidey's still the talk of the town that he has to get out of the house, but how is he going to do that without worrying May? Of course, Cosmic and Comic Timing have the doorbell ring at this very moment, and Anna Watson is standing at the door as May answers it. Anna says she wants to have a good old-fashioned chat, and May's like, I got you. The cookie's already baked, and the tea is already on the stove, sis. Let's do it. Pete grabs his goldenrod jacket and tells the ladies that since they're planning to have a chin fest, he's going to head to the movies. May says, have a good time. Don't watch anything scary. Anna says she always tells Mary Jane the same thing. And I love Anna Watson. She wants these two kids to get hooked up, and every chance she gets, she's dropping Mary Jane's name. Pete was at the graduation, she's dropping Mary Jane's name. When they're in the hospital, she's dropping Mary Jane's name. When they're in the house, she's dropping Mary Jane's name. Like, kid, you avoiding something great here. You need to meet this girl that I'm always talking about, my niece, the one and only, incomparable Mary Jane Watson. Do yourself the favor. I'm trying to help you. Back to Pete must have raced out of the house because his hair is windswept as he smiles in a purple negative space, running forward in the next panel, thinking, thank goodness for Mrs. Watson. And now, it's time for the real Spider-Man to go into action. Gesundheit. And in no time at all, the golden liability is swinging above the city on a web line. He's thinking since his doppelganger is constantly harassing JJ, the first stop has to be... 39th Street, 2nd Avenue, Midtown, Limestone Building. You can't miss it. Translation, Spidey's swinging towards the Daily Bugle. Of course he gets there in no time at all. But before he can even enter the building, he, for the first time ever, is blanketed in the sign of the spider as the phony Spider-Man waves at him from the roof of a nearby ledge. Spidey thinks it's nice of the guy to make it easy for him, and the chase is on. He web swings after the imposter, who, no web shooters of his own, is leaping from building to building. And Spidey's thinking, he must be nuts now that he made me spun. He he's running away from me. Nuts! Is there more to it than that? He might be trying to lead me somewhere. He's definitely leading you into a trap, Spidey. You shouldn't even have to wonder at this point. A person is dressed up as you and they're coming after you? It has always been a trap. Spidey lands on a derelict building to open 11, thinking his doubles got crummy taste because the whole block's been condemned and is just waiting to be torn down. Spidey wonders where the imposter got off to. Then, on the street directly below. We see three guys staring up at the webhead. Brunette, orange fedora, maroon suit. Noirette, green fedora, SJB suit. Noirette, too. Red newsy cap, yellow jacket, olive shirt. Maroon pushes SJB, telling him to go get the boys. That this is their chance to get rid of him, once and for all. 
referring to Spider-Man. So you know this is Nails, Badger, and Sneaky Pete. And Sneaky Pete shouts, Yeah, I've been itching to get my mitts on that punk. And personally, I was wondering why anyone would be hanging around a condemned city block, but nothing these guys do has to make sense. I also looked up condemned buildings in the mid-60s, and this was a revitalizing time in New York where a ton of buildings were being torn down to make way for the buildings that are now currently skyscrapers and things like that in lower Manhattan. So I'm convinced this tale is happening at 82 Beekman Street. Look it up. Back to Wild on the Roof. High above all such sordid goings-on. Craven has dropped the Spidey act in his suit and then booted in his animal print. Hands on hips on a rooftop ledge, slightly above Spider-Man. He says, And now, Spider-Man, the masquerade is over. And Spidey, wheeling around, shouts, Craven! The hunter! Then it was you! You were impersonating me! Craven points a finger at him, telling Spider-Man that surely the webhead didn't think Craven would stay contented in the defeat Spidey gave him last time. He says it's time for another hunt, and this time, victory is going to be his. Spidey's like, okay, Shim, sounds to me like you're just a glutton for punishment. And we got action. Craven shouts, we'll see about that, and pulls what looks like a small lemon from who knows where, and sprays the liquid onto Spidey, shouting that this is his jungle scent, and it's going to cancel out Spidey's spider sense. Lemon juice can cancel out Spidey's spider sense. Mother nature, what can't you do? Craven, calling Spidey his victim to be, says now our hero's powers are barely equal to his own. There is a river flowing through the mind of Craven the Hunter. I think it's denial. Spidey, spitting out the lemon juice that's gotten into his mouth, says the day that he can't be Craven will be the day indeed. indeed. He rushes towards Craven, who takes a step forward calmly, saying, Okay, talk is cheap. If you can beat me on this hunt, I'll confess that I impersonated you. But if not, <laughs> but Spidey cuts him off. Skip the rest, Craven. There's not gonna be any if-nots. Before Spidey can get to Craven, though, a nearby wall collapses to open 12, and the bricks fall towards our hero, who realizes Craven's booby-trapped the area. It's no problem for the best ever with agility. In a side leap that has him landing on the fingertips of his right hand, arms wide, Spidey shouts, But anytime you old friendly neighborhood Spider-Man can't outleap a pile of tumbling crates, that'll be the day. Those aren't crates, Spidey. Those are bricks. But Craven, using his enhanced speed, is already gone. He's gotten ghost in the space between panels. And Spidey, of course talking out loud, giving the game away, says if he wants Craven, he's gonna have to hunt him down. We get a gorgeous panel of Spidey walking down a banister in the dilapidated Beacon Street building because Spidey never takes the stairs if he can help it. And Spidey's thinking, I better be careful. He's had all the time in the world to set every kind of unexpected trap for me. 27 years before Kevin McAllister set his first trap at his uncle's townhouse on 95th Street, Craven set up 82 Beekman Street with traps galore for our hero. Home Alone 2 had the Sticky Bandits. We've got the Sticky Handed, the Amazing Spider-Man. Sidebar, Home Alone 2 is the greatest Christmas movie of all time, bar none. Here on me and my friend Pete, we are not taking opinions on this one. We take opinions on a lot, but not on this. Back to... Craven on bended knee and shadow, all traps set. He's thinking, and now it begins. I've given him enough time to realize what he's up against. So while he hunts me, Craven, the greatest hunter of all, shall be hunting him. And the game begins in earnest. But neither the hunter nor the hunted is yet aware that our third force has entered the deadly game. No less than nine gang members have entered 82 Beekman Street, and I describe what they're wearing, but they've got candy painted clothing on. Translation? 
It's going to change constantly as we go forward. Suffice to say, we've got suits, we've got jackets, we've got fedoras and flat caps, and we've got more than one of them holding blackjacks in their hands, ready to club the Spider-Man. And a blackjack, for anyone wondering, is a short leather-covered rod, usually lead, used for whacking. If you've ever seen any old-timey movie and seen a person hit another person in the head from behind, chances are they were hit with a blackjack. Back to One guy shouts that Spidey's gotta be around here somewhere. Another, no matter how much of a hot shot he is, he can't handle all of us. And a third tells him to spread out. And if they see the webhead, holla! While they're spreading out, Spidey's getting spidery. He's got his left palm pressed against the floor, arms straight, his left knee is near his elbow, his right hand curled over his head, his right foot bent as well, barely dodging a snare trap he's just activated while a large wooden beam swings down towards his face at the same time. And he's thinking, phew, phew, that was a close one. If not for the old spider speed, I'd be a trapped little web spinner. Agility on best ever. On 13, thinking there isn't a trap made that can stop him from doing what he needs to do, or at least he hopes there isn't, Spidey leaps from one window and into another. A noirette guy in a blue fedora, olive jacket, and green pants, holding a lead pipe, asks the guy in front of him, that's gray hair, maroon suit, green fedora, holding a blackjack, if he heard something from the room ahead as they step over broken crates and boxes. He says that sound must have been the spider. Maroon suit, brandishing his blackjack, says that's fine with him, that he's going to prove Spidey's a phony and mop up the place with our hero. But Spidey hears them coming and leaps up onto the ceiling. Huh. Hearing a pair of footsteps, he wonders if the cat's paw brought a friend as the two men enter the room. Green Fedora tells Blue that he must have been hearing things, while Spidey, still clinging to the ceiling, watches them thinking they're a couple of plug uglies. Translation, violent troublemakers are bullies. <laughs> Bet you didn't see that coming. Maybe you thought it just meant ugly. But no! Spidey stands up, upside down, shouting. Sorry, gents. This is a private party. Blue Fedora screams, it's him. To which Spidey replies, Tsk, tsk. You mean, it is he. Nothing infuriates me as much as bad grammar. Or didn't you know? And leaps towards the goons with both fists outstretched, knocking them both out cold. He webs the unconscious goons up in the gutter between panels and heads towards the window saying he hates to rush off this way, but there's a fella trying to end his career. He has to stop. 14 opens with Spidey clinging to a sheer wall outside of 82 Beekman, staring down at four more gang members entering the building. Spidey's thinking, holy smoke, it looks like old hoodlums leak around here. Well, I'll have to put them on ice fast before Craven was the boom on me. He sprays a web net over the group and attaching webbing to his legs in the gutter between panels, swings down like a trapeze artist upside down with both fists flailing, saying next time they want to come for the spider, they better make an appointment. He puts all four of the group down, no problem, before web swinging back up into a window, hoping he's seen the last of the gang members. His spider sense activates as he enters the window, and he realizes Craven's lemon zest potion's effects must have worn off, and there's danger inside. He thinks maybe there's time to stop himself as he flies forward and grabs the edges of the window frame, hoping to backflip out of the room. But before the amazing adventurer can make a move, Craven pounces grabbing Spider-Man around the waist and shouting that he's got Spidey now. The hunt's over. Spidey tells him not to bank on it. The two flip head over feet in a goldenrod negative space in the final panel. Craven shouting that he can beat up a full-grown lion, that all Spidey's got are some sort of spider powers. Spidey's like, wow, you really know how to hurt a person's feelings. That's, that's, that's all you think of me? So you think, just a guy with some spider's powers? What, I can lift 10 tons? I don't know it yet, but the narrative seems to. Gerald. Okay, I'm getting back to, I'm getting sidetracked, I apologize. Back to, on 15, the two get it shaken in close combat, 
closer to the floor. Craven grabs Spidey's right wrist with his own right hand and telling Spidey he's afraid, cracks him across the jaw with a left cross, shouting that for the first time, Spidey's staring in the face of utter defeat. Spidey, his body weight on his right hand pressed against the floor, his jaw facing north, says if you say so, before going straight into the drizzy maneuver in the next panel. Left hand pressed against the floor in a modified plank, feet off the ground, he throws a right that sends Craven's head towards the floor, and Spidey's quipping, by the way, in case I forgot to tell you, I hate for anyone to breathe in my face. Get your hot breath out my face, homie. But Craven eats those. Back on his feet in no time, he throws a downward double-fisted strike that sends Spidey sprawling, and now he's got words. Never again will you dare to taunt Craven. The same strength that can stop the charge of a bull elephant will steal your voice forever. Craven is very impressed with himself in regards to his bull elephant punch. He has been talking about this thing since ASM number 15. But Spidey isn't. He throws a right uppercut. I've got news for you, Craven. You may be a wizard room with bull elephants, but you're a dud at swanning spiders. Yeah, Spidey, bring it to the hunter. But the blow for blow goes on hold as six dudes storm into the room from both entrances. One goon from the northern entrance shouts they found Spider-Man. Another wonders where the other guys are that they send in after Spidey. And who's the guy in a lion's vest? A guy in a red fedora says, what difference does that make? That they should get Spider-Man now before he gets away. The dudes entering from the southern entrance shout for them to rush him together. Another says he'll never get away this time. All this happening and Craven still crouched low, throws a right hook. But Spidey flips over him on a handstand towards the window and spinning... In midair, agility on, best ever, braces on the ledge of the window with only his right hand, spraying webbing into the room with his left at the southern goons, telling them that he's sorry to disappoint, but this is a private fight. While Craven, at the same time, knocks both northern goons out as he sprints towards the door, calling them puny fools and telling them no one is going to spoil the hunt for him. One of the goons getting webbed up, Watching the dudes getting knocked out, realizes he may have gotten off easy. Better webbing than a bull elephant punch in the face, and he shouts, I got a hunch we bit off a heck of a lot more than we can chew. I think you're right, guy. I think you're right. You chose the wrong building. On 16, Spidey and Craven start cleaning house in separate parts of the building to ensure they can fight the fair one. Spidey, on a sheer wall outside of a window, drops two goons with a punch each. Craven, racing through the building in pursuit of Spider-Man, knocks a green-suited man and a dude in a yellow jacket out without breaking his stride, thinking he's got to get in position to renew his attack against the spider. Spidey, horizontal on the sheer wall in the next panel, knocks another goon in out of suit out cold with a backhand, then apologizing, saying he was hoping the man was Craven. So I know he hit this dude way harder than he normally hits a regular person. This dude's gonna be asleep for a week. Feet gripping a sheer wall, his back pressed against it, both fists clenched. Spidey's thinking, well, that wraps up the last of those Ursats Untouchables. But we're in blazes that Craven run off to. Translation, fake untouchables. The untouchables being a law enforcement group of special agents founded in 1930 under the U.S. Bureau of Prohibition. Led by Elliot Ness, their goal was to end Al Capone's illegal alcohol operation in the midst of Prohibition. Known for being incorruptible, the Untouchables' work led to Capone's conviction on tax evasion and the group's popularity led to a TV show in 1959 that lasted until 1963 and an outstanding 1987 film starring Kevin Costner and the legend Sean Connery. Still, it's abolished the police on this side, no matter the Hollywood propaganda. Back to 
And at that same moment, the greatest hunter of all is wondering the same thing about Spidey. Craven's roaming down the hallway thinking he can still smell the faint lemon zest of his jungle scent, so Spidey must be somewhere close. He keeps walking and the aroma gets stronger. I'm drawing closer, just as he draws closer to his doom. Craven crawls out of a nearby window and peers around the edge of the building. He spots an unaware Spidey in shadow and thinks now all he has to do is use a simple stratagem to catch Spidey lacking. In the final panel, as Spidey clings to an outside sheer wall, his Spidey sense goes off as a brick falls past his head towards the ground below. And Spidey thinks, Huh? Oh, it's just a piece of land. Falling. But why? What made it fall? And what indeed? 17 opens to Craven falling towards Spider-Man from above, and we're in the midst of that cover shot. Craven shouts that this was all he needed. One second of distraction. Spidey shouts, So, it was you. And we've got action. Again. Craven lands on Spidey's back and the two hurtle to the earth. Craven talking his smack. Now, there can be no interruptions to grant you a last minute reprieve. Now the game shall be played out to the end. Now the skill, speed, and raw strength with which I subdue the wildest jungle beast shall be your undoing also. Thus does Craven win his greatest haunt. As he says this, he grabs the upper edge of a window and swings himself and Spider-Man into it. Craven the Hunter is working right now, but so is Spidey. As the two go flying through the window, Spidey tosses Craven over his shoulder, thinking, I'll be darned if he isn't as good as he says he is. He heard me into this window like an eagle carrying a lamb. But this is where the resemblance ceases. Craven, head over feet, is impressed. He shouts, So, there is still some fight left in you, eh? Well, it won't be there for long. And throws a right hook in midair, snapping Spidey's head back. The two tumble into the room and are back on their feet in no time. Both low to the earth, Craven's back to us, stage right, is advancing towards our hero. Spidey's left fingertips grazing the floor, is waiting for Craven to do that little thing. Craven shouts, My moment has come at last. Nothing can save you now, Spider-Man. Spidey shouts back, You fans are raining, loudmouth. Now it's my turn at bat. Now batting, number one, the king of swing from Far's Hills, Queens, the golden liability, Spider-Man. And on 18, they go right at it. They get into it like we're turning the cover page. Spidey shouts, I'm taking your boasting brags till they're coming out of my ears. Now I got to beat you before you bore me to death. While Craven says Spider-Man doesn't fool him, that the hero is only talking to keep his courage up. And Spidey's like, look, believe what you want. As the two both throw right hooks and dodge at the same time. They are working. In the next panel, Spidey shouts that while he's trembling in fear, he's just going to go ahead and put Craven on ice at the same damn time. Craven, cracking Spidey on the right pectoral with another right cross, shouts, Why don't you fall? I hit you hard enough to stagger a rhino. What are you made of? And of course, Sugar. Spidey replies, Spice. Sugar and spice and everything nice. And everything nice. These were the ingredients chosen to create the perfect little girl. But also, the golden liability. Spidey cracks Craven across the jaw with a right uppercut, and not one to change tactics when it's working, hits him with another one that sends Craven's jaw north. The last position you want to be in in a fight. And Spidey's thinking, Phew, phew, at last, I got a good clean punch. Mustn't give him a chance to recover. He's too strong. Have to keep hammering while I can. Spidey throws an overhand right that connects with Craven's collarbone and shouting, in case you haven't guessed Craven, follows it up with a left hook that he leans all the way into, and the punch is so strong it lifts Craven off his feet. Spidey shouts, the hunt is over, as Craven falls to the floor.
out cold. A short time later, investigating a shining spider beam signal, the newly arrived police are flabbergasted to find. Bullseye Charlie and Ike, the police officers, are on scene, staring at Craven suspended from a web line, wrapped in webbing at the center of the sign of the spider. But Spidey didn't stop there. Doing all of the police work, on the ground of the wall beneath the sign of the spider, most of Nails Hogan's gang webbed up as well. Ike shouts, it's like they won a raffle. And hidden in the shadows of a nearby rooftop. On 19, Spidey the Triumphant stands on a nearby rooftop and clicks his belt light off saying the capture of Craven is big news and he might as well grab some pics. But when he takes his camera out, Scoop Spider changes his mind. Oh, the heck with it. If I bring him to Jameson, I'll have to see Betty. And somehow, I just don't feel up to facing her right now. Walking along the edge of a ledge with his head down in the next panel, he continues his monologue. Besides, it's only fair for me to stay away from her, to give her a chance to get me out of her system, once and for all. It, it's the least I can do for her. But Spidey's taking away her agency, and to me, that's not cool. Instead of being honest, he's going for straight avoidance. That's unfair, but nobody's perfect, and I'm sure this decision will end up hurting him later. And as Spider-Man disappears into the enveloping darkness, we see Craven the Hunter in profile talking to Ike the police officer and Jameson's demon reporter, Frederick Foswell, admitting to them that he's the one who was threatening Jameson disguised as Spider-Man. When Ike asks why he's telling them this, Craven replies, Whatever else I may be, I am a man of honor. I have given my word. Say what you want about the manhunting Craven, like he's a manhunter, but his word is his bond and he won't break it. It's damn near chemical. Thus, a short time later, at the Daily Bugle offices, Jameson, white shirt, red tie, green pants, sleeves rolled up, busy man, way past busy enough, is shaking a fist at the maroon-clad Foswell, whose back is to us, and he's pissed. You mean Spider-Man is vindicated? No, I don't believe it. I won't believe it. Foswell, already used to JJ's tirade, says, hey man, he showed the police exactly how he was doing it. It was definitely him. And does JJ snap? Was toilet paper invented by Joseph Gayetti of New York City? Wait, what? Of course he snaps. Blast it. This means that Spider-Man will end up being a hero. Just when I thought I finally had him where I wanted him. Foswell chimes in. What have you got against that guy anyway, boss? That's my business, Foswell, but I'll nail him yet. Translation? Mind your business, Foswell. I don't pay you to ask me questions. In the next panel, a raven-haired woman in a red silk blouse with pink around the neck and collarbone enters the office telling Jameson she's finished all the day's correspondence and asks if there will be anything else. Jameson says no, that they're not running a sweatshop and tells her to get going but be back tomorrow at 9 sharp. When the young lady asks, Oh, does that mean? Jameson, still unable to get his voice on the control shouts. Yes, you're hired. The job of replacing Betty Brent is yours. Betty Brent has quit her job at the Daily Bugle. The young lady turns and exits the office and we get a good look at her face. And I promise you, she's the spitting image of Archie's Veronica. And she's thinking that this is wonderful. She's now the personal secretary of the publisher of the Daily Bugle. I'm sure no one's mentioned to her that this guarantees at least one kidnapping by a supervillain a year because she thinks that she never thought Betty Brant would leave so suddenly and wonders what happened to her. Also, I just want to point out, Jameson does work people to the bone way past closing time. He's done it to Betty countless times. There was one issue. He was in the hospital and he made Betty, when he woke up at like 9 o'clock at night, go back to the office with him and Pete. That was ASM number 22. Presenting the clown and his masters of menace. Or, Spiance in the Fleabag 2, rebranded, reloaded. Here on me and my friend Pete, back to 
Either way, his new secretary wonders why Betty Brant would leave so suddenly and what's happened to her. A caption box at the bottom of the page chimes in. And so do we, young lady. So do we. Meanwhile, unaware of the change in personnel at the Daily Bugle, Peter Parker returns to his modest little home in Forest Hills, Queens. Pete walks in just as the two women are discussing Mary Jane. Mrs. Watson says hello, but Pete's entering the room. He really should have been the one to speak first. That's just etiquette. Either way, May says she's glad her nephew came home early and asks if he enjoyed the movie. And Pete's like, what? Movie? Oh, yeah, right. I lied to you. He tells May he's going to run upstairs to get some studying done and tells Mrs. Watson it was nice seeing her. May tells him not to tire himself out. Mrs. Watson says he's such a nice boy, not a rowdy rough like Brick Boulder or Bash. If you know, you know. But once alone in his room, the complex, sensitive, anguished youth who is Peter Parker finds that he cannot study. He cannot concentrate on anything except... His hand pressed against the desk of his chemistry set, his head lowered, the shadow of the blinds cutting along his back diagonally. Pete lets out all his woes to the shadows. Am I really being a coward? Is it that I'm afraid to face Betty? Afraid to tell her the truth? Am I afraid of her reaction when she learns of the secret I've kept from her all these years? He walks over to the window and stares out past the tree in his backyard. In this, the panel of the week. Continuing his sad monologue. No, this is no good. It's useless. I've got to learn to accept things as they are. I've got to stop thinking of Betty. To me, it must be as though she doesn't exist. It's the only way, because she'd never accept me as Spider-Man. The camera pans out of the house and into the backyard, so now we're staring at Pete in shadow and a large branch of the oak tree there as he finishes his monologue. But Spider-Man I've been, and shall always be, for as long as I live. And that's the end of the issue. But in the final panel, we get next. And beneath this, a picture of the golden god himself, punching through brick with a straight left hand. And beneath this, another caption box, white letters in red backdrop. The Molten Man returns and we're out pete's back in high spirits at least when he's flip flipping and crime fighting and you love to see it determined spidey is great but for me i love the spidey who has time for quips while he whips and throws fists that spidey craven slugfest you gotta love it this is a beautifully drawn issue and the entire battle in the beekman street condemned building was beautiful art and words combined i love the way spidey and craven were fighting so close to the earth Usually Spidey bounces around rooms, but with Kraven, I think Spidey knows that he can handle Kraven's strength, so he likes to have a little bit more of a slug match with him, go blow for blow with the guy, and not have to be as dodgy. Great to see. Great understanding of the character from Stan and Steve and Sam in this one. And speaking of the artwork, some of the angles Spidey and Kraven's bodies were contorted in were hard to describe, but proved Ditko had anatomy mastered working as he's wont to do. On the flip side, Pete's finally realized he's not going to win any popularity contest at ESU, but more importantly, his struggle to get over Betty Brant may have just got a lot easier. Betty's left the bugle and our friend doesn't even know it, so you know we're gonna get a ton of drama to go along with all the action that we're sure to get next issue in ASM number 35, The Molten Man Regrets. That's the main episode this week, and that's true. That's the main episode, but there is more me and my friend Pete available for your listening pleasure right now. I promise, if you support this show on patreon.com slash HSPP, 
Patrons get a bonus show every time we drop a new episode here, where I run through comic books from all over the multiverse of comics, past and present, from Marvel to DC to all points in between. This week, we're running through The Darkness, Volume 3, Number 1, Part 1 of the six-part Empire story arc titled Nightfall. Jackie Estacado's looking for a fresh start, but that doesn't mean people are going to let him have it. Over the years, he's made a lot of enemies, and I can guarantee some are coming to pay him a visit. There will be blood, there will be violence, there will be explosions. If we've got comics, we've got history, and I'll be your guide through it all. Join us. This podcast is completely listener-supported, and your support keeps this crazy train on the tracks. I'm truly grateful you keep coming back, and more grateful you allow me to be the conductor. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, a special thanks to the home team, Parker's Dirty Dozen. Sign up now, vote on bonus episodes, make it a Baker's, we'd love to have you. And if you sign up before ASM number 50, you'll receive a special thank you lapel pin for being a patron during season two. Let's keep these good times rolling. You won't regret it. You got questions? Send them to me in myfriendpete at gmail.com and I'll go digging for the answers. Follow us on Instagram at MNMFP underscore podcast. The panel of the week can be found at patreon.com slash HSPP. And the first bonus panel of the week from our bonus episode can also now be found at patreon.com slash HSPP. And it will be the bonus panel from last week's bonus is up there right now. Go check it out. It is an awesome, awesome panel. Doug Monk was working. All that said, that's all that said. That Dusty Trails are calling, so there's no use stalling. And as always, please like, please comment, please share, please Leave a comment take on care. Patreon and please think of the world and be true to yourself. And remember, with great power, <laughs> come on, come on, we've been doing this how long? You know, you know the rest. Make sure you're being responsible. I'm out of here. <laughs>